This is Archive Atlanta, episode 180, Butler Street, YMCA. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So this week's episode is all about my favorite building in Atlanta. And I get this question often, and I always say it's like asking somebody with more than one kid, who's your favorite kid? But when I really think about it, like this is definitely top three. And the reason is because this one structure has black history, Jewish history, white history, and it's the embodiment of the Atlanta way. It was created by a biracial upper class coalition that wanted the building to serve as both a symbol of Atlanta's progress and an answer to issues of crime in poor black Atlanta. And it was also funded in the midst of World War One, the Great Fire of 1917, a whole host of other issues. So it's just incredible that it was even built. I'll also share the story of Atlanta's African-American YMCA, its first offices, the promises of funding this new building, the campaign to raise the money, the architecture, the utility, and then the many famous programs and people that have worked and played inside its walls. So if you're local and you're familiar, this is pretty much on the corner of Auburn Avenue and Jesse Hill Jr. Drive, a very tall structure with kind of green dormers at the top. And it has been vacant for, I think almost as long as I have lived here. Um, I don't know the exact year. And preservationists do call this demolition by neglect, which is when a building is vacant, but it is in unsecure. So the windows are all open in this building. Um, Over the years, it has been more secured and less secured than it is now. While promises of redevelopment have come and gone, I definitely do not know anything. So if you have something to share, let me know. But I hope that when you learn about how important it is today, you can understand why I would love to see it restored and why we should all look forward to seeing this kind of shine in its glory, hopefully in the future. First, let's start with a brief history of the YMCA in general. The Young Men's Christian Association was founded in England by George Williams, who moved to industrial London as a retailer. He was concerned about the lack of healthy activities for young men, which was a common theme during the Industrial Revolution. So the fact that leisure time activities for men at the time were limited to taverns and brothels. And so for Williams, the idea of an acceptable Christian-based place of leisure that was free from the temptations of alcohol, gambling, and prostitution grew out of these prayer and Bible studies that he held for his fellow workers. In June of 1844, one of these meetings led to the formation of the YMCA, and the goal was to, quote, improve the spiritual condition of young men, end quote. So the first YMCA for white men in the United States was formed in Boston in 1851, and then the first for black men was formed in Washington, D.C. in 1853. During Reconstruction, the white YMCA began assisting African Americans throughout the country, and then in 1876, they appointed a traveling secretary for the black YMCA to work in the South. Between 1883 and 1888, they established 28 black YMCAs on college campuses, some short-lived and some that lasted longer. So we're talking about a decade out of the end of slavery, so black communities do not have the resources to fund their own organizations, definitely not their own buildings. But colleges and universities had funds and they had concentration of students. For white leaders in the YMCA, there was kind of three buckets of reasons to support black people at the time. One group was former abolitionists. One group were hoping to recruit these people to become missionaries to travel to Africa. And then for most Southern 
white YMCA members, the idea is that the YMCA would provide like racial harmony training for good citizenship. A lot of the stuff I talked about, um, especially in the progressive era movements, just this idea that black people out of slavery had to be taught how to be good citizens or be good Americans, that that wasn't something they knew how to do. In Atlanta, white men began their own chapter around 1873, and by 1890, the National YMCA offered to create a colored men's department. So by 1895, the Conference of Colored YMCAs is actually held at First Congregational Church, which is still downtown today. There, they had 35 delegates representing 18 different colleges, and the first black YMCA in Atlanta begins not too long after that. I think it's like, ooh, I missed the date somewhere, but it begins in the basement of Wheat Street Baptist, also still around today, although it's not the building where this actually happened. Willis Murphy served as the first president of the group. Um, It was composed of mostly men and women, and they were doing religious work, very strictly religious work. The organization later moved to the corner of Fort and Kane Streets, and then they later moved to the basement of Big Bethel. By 1902-1903, the Colored YMCA moved into their new home, which was at 130 Auburn Avenue. So today, that is precisely where the former Atlanta Life Insurance building is. Um, It's across from from the uh, former Daily World building. And so from what I can tell from the papers um, and the map, this was a house. And so it cost them about $3,800 to buy, which is a lot of money to turn the century. Now, the money that they used for this, a lot of it came from white Christian organizations and men across Atlanta, a lot of the same men that I talked about in last week's episode. Um, It was a big deal. In 1905, Booker T. Washington visited and spoke at their hall. Around the same time, so 1900, there is a big push for black YMCAs across America to erect their own buildings. So by 1900, there were 21 black YMCAs across the U.S. and only five owned their own dedicated buildings. The funding drives were led by local leaders, but then big philanthropists started to get into it. So John D. Rockefeller started it, if you want to say that. I think he made some of the first donations, but then Julius Rosenwald joined the party. If you have not listened to my interview with Andrew Filer back in episode 125, you should do that. Um, We learned all about the Rosenwald schools and Julius Rosenwald. He was um, a Jewish man from the Midwest, if I remember correctly. Um, He was president of Sears and Roebuck. But he was a big time philanthropist, again, donated a lot of money for Rosenwald school, but he also donated money to many other causes. And in the same vein as Carnegie, his idea was um, kind of like matching grants. So I promise X amount of money only if the community or the city can provide the rest. All of this tied back to that self-help bootstrap values of the early 19th century capitalists. On January 1st, 1911, Julius Rosenwald proposed $25,000 to any city in the U.S. that would give $75,000 for a black YMCA. The offer was good for five years, and the only stipulation was that the money had to be used for everything related, so land, building, and furnishings. After the announcement, a group of 250 black Atlantans formed to secure this grant. So prior to this, the white YMCA, which stood at the corner of North Pryor and Auburn Avenue, provided the majority of funding for the Black YMCA. 
Also in 1911, the white YMCA stated that they needed money too in order to revamp their building. So it's a little bit of a competing situation. Um, the white YMCA puts out a call for $600,000. That's how much they thought they needed. And 100000 of that was earmarked for the quote-unquote color department. So the black community's goal was to raise 50,000, adding in Rosenwald 25,000, and then they were hoping to receive 25,000 more from their white counterparts. By February of 1911, there had been $67,497 raised combined with the Rosenwald grant, and the group only needed about 82,000 more. Um, this is where the numbers start to get kind of weird. So I think they initially assumed that $75,000 was going to cover this whole thing, and I'm going to safely assume that they soon realized that was not accurate. So you can see the amounts of money start to vary a lot here. In March of 1912, Wheat Street Baptist held a huge fundraising event. Um, by December of 1913, they had another huge event with 7,000 Atlantans at the Municipal Auditorium. And these were successful. I think they raised like $5,300 at that event, which again, a lot of money at the time. And that had been added to the 11,000 or so that they had already raised. And big name people were at this event, like Governor Slayton was there. And there was very much a paternalistic feeling. And this is not my personal assessment. So if you read the newspaper accounts in the finale speech, the governor literally says that this YMCA is the answer to fighting crime in Atlanta's black communities. There was a women's auxiliary of the Black YMCA. They had 52 collection committees and they sent 300 women through the streets. So this is another issue that had come up and this came up across the U.S. is that a lot of people in the beginning, you know, uh, Rosenwald makes this big announcement. Everybody's caught up and they make pledges. But very few people actually cashed in on those promises. So these women went around to collect those debts. And then World War I began. Officially in 1914, but as I covered in the overalls episode, Americans dealt with rising costs and food shortages even before we formally entered the war. It was when the war officially ended in 1918 that inflation was through the roof, uh, production dropped 50%, the country had 3,600 labor strikes, um, inflation from 1919 to 1920 alone was 15%. So I'm kind of skipping around in history a little bit, but I do want to highlight that the environment that the YMCA is working in, trying to get a $150,000 building built, is really difficult. They continued to hold fundraisers, with the last big one being in December of 1915. The Atlanta Music Festival held an organ recital at the Auditorium Armory, with all the Black College Glee Clubs in attendance, every Black pastor in Atlanta, and every Black Masonic Lodge in Atlanta. It raised the remaining $9,000, which made Atlanta the first Black YMCA in the South to raise the matching funds for the Rosenwald Grant. In October of 1916, the architecture firm of Hence, Reed, and Adler completed plans for a colored young men's Christian association building to be erected on North Butler Street. So Hence, Reed, and Adler were arguably some of the most famous architects in Atlanta. If you don't know their names, you probably know their work. So they did the Swan House, uh, Richard's Department Store, Brookwood Station, many, many more. And I couldn't find details about the architect selection process. So it's 
definitely not common to have a very prominent white architecture firm designing something for the black community at this time. But my assumption is that the support of the elite white Atlanta, this kind of biracial project, and the fact that this is a very prestigious project, it's national, you know, it's everyone is kind of looking to the city to see what they're doing, influenced all of this. It was, however, built by Alexander Hamilton. So my favorite Atlantan, uh, I think my very first episode was about him and I did a kind of a revised episode. At this stage, his son, so Alexander Daniel Hamilton was working on it, um, but he did erect it. In August of 1916, the groundbreaking took place for the new building with speeches by Dr. Jones, who was representing the city's white ministers, and Dr. E.R. Carter, who was representing the black. So I don't know what, if any, part of the building was actually built. I think this was truly a groundbreaking, like everybody had a shovel for the camera, because the building really wouldn't be completed until four years later, but we'll get to that. It was World War I and the black soldiers at Camp Gordon that would help push for donations. The influx of soldiers into the city and surrounding suburbs were bringing up some issues. These men were looking for entertainment. That could mean bars, that could mean brothels, that could mean gambling. And venereal diseases were an issue in all of Atlanta during World War I. And so for upper class white and black leaders, there was this immense push to find a, again, acceptable place for these soldiers to hang out. By March of 1917, the structure on Butler Street was in some state of partial completion. And then the Great Fire came to town. I talked about this in episode 33, but the edges of the fire came within blocks of the YMCA property. I think it's like one block, and it disproportionately affected the city's black population. Keeping in mind, we are still in a world war, now we've added a fire, and the struggle to raise more money just was almost impossible. Black churches that had been decimated in the fire were still promising to raise money. They were still promising to match donations from the community. As 1917 came to a close, the last of the funds were secured. And a lot of this came from the work of J.K. Orr. So he was uh, president of the Chamber of Commerce. And he puts this call out to all Atlanta, all the businessmen, Jacob Elsis from Fulton Bag, just every single one of them donated and kind of took this over the finish line. In July of 1918, the formal laying of the cornerstone took place with a brass band parade from the old YMCA along Auburn Avenue to the new site on Butler Street. And it would take another year and a half to open. And in May of 1920, at that event, more speeches were given in the gymnasium by the principal of Tuskegee, um, the national secretary from the YMCA, and Professor John Hope from Morehouse. The structure was fireproof, made of hard-pressed brick veneer, and had six floors. So the first floor had a cafeteria, a lunchroom, men's locker room, men's bathroom, boys' reading room, boys' locker room, latrines, and a swimming pool. Cafeteria was set up near the entrance so that people could get meals if they weren't part of the YMCA, so kind of like a little pop-up restaurant. The second floor had a lobby, office, men's game room, and a gym. 
There's a fireplace adorned with a bronze statue called Inspiration by Meta Fuller. Um, she was from Boston. She was a pupil of Rodin. And it depicted an angel whispering into the ear of a youth pointing towards the rising sun. That is still there, by the way. The gym was equipped by the Narragansett Machine Company of Providence, Rhode Island, and was the most adequately equipped and modern gym in the South. The third floor held religious and educational rooms, a really large assembly room could hold like 300 people, and it had a dumbwaiter. The fourth, fifth, and sixth floors would all be dormitories, but the fifth and sixth floor were not completed yet. But when they were, it was going to be able to have beds for a hundred men. In January of 1921, the first session of the U.S. Public Health Hygiene Conference and the Atlanta Urban League Conference was held here. In 1932, Julius Rosenwald died, and there was a memorial service held here at the YMCA with Rabbi Marks, Dr. Hope, and Dr. Cox, who at that point was president of Emory speaking. In August of 1932, the Atlanta Colored Brick Masons Club met there. The YMCA launched a Learn to Swim campaign. During the Depression, they also had citizenship schools. Uh, these were created to address political apathy. So there was this idea that it's the Depression, first of all. Um, the black community is limited in their voting rights because of the white primary, which I think I talked about in episode 162. And so in order to combat this apathy, there was a six-week course at the Butler Street Y, and you would learn very basics like structure of national, state, and local governments, the procedure of how to register and how to vote. And students were reminded that, you know, while we cannot vote in the white primary, we can vote in other things, but also there may be a time when the U.S. Supreme Court could say this is unconstitutional, and that actually happened. The 1930s also held a lot of basketball games, a lot. Like, I could have done an episode about basketball games. Um, they also had a conference of the Georgia State Medical Association um, in 1941, it became like a servicemen's center. So they created one for World War II soldiers at this point. They created one in downtown Atlanta for white soldiers, and the Butler Street YMCA became one for black soldiers. Also in the 1940s, the first meetings of the Hungry Club Forum were held at the Y. So the Hungry Club Forum was an idea started by Dr. Ira Reed, who was an Omega, and he was department chair of sociology at Atlanta University. He noticed there was no forum in Atlanta where issues could be discussed publicly, but in a desegregated setting. And so the Hungry Club became a place for politicians to speak. I mean, all mayors, I think Kasim Reed was the last mayor to address the club during their campaigns. In 1967, a year before his death, Dr. King spoke at the Hung Hungry Club Forum about the three major evils, racism, poverty, and war. In 1947, after decades of requesting black police officers, the city of Atlanta began accepting applications. Interested parties were instructed to pick up their blanks or applications from the YMCA. And then by February of 1948, the Y is also where they held all of the physical fitness tests. In April of that year, the first eight officers changed in their precinct, which was in the basement of the YMCA, because they were not allowed to use the standard police department precinct with other white officers. The local history, and read this in the paper as well, is that when the officers came out for their first day on the shift, the, the whole street was full of people that were sort of cheering them on. 
This is a small sampling of the meetings and events and conferences that were held here. Again, we were a segregated city up until the Civil Rights Act passed. And so anything that was happening in Atlanta that was a black event, especially if it was national or international, this became meeting space for that. The building operated as a YMCA until 1996 when a new facility was constructed immediately across the street. And then in 2001, Butler Street was renamed to honor Jesse Hill Jr., civil rights activist, Atlanta Life Insurance CEO, co-founder of the Atlanta Inquirer, many, many other things that the man has done. So there you have it, the story of the Butler Street YMCA. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.